0: Please pray with me. Holy God, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords, you are a mighty fortress. The righteous run to you and are saved. You are our rock and our defender, the great and glorious God. Thank you, Lord, for all the ways your power is revealed in this chapter of Esther. I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you want to teach us as we walk through this chapter. Teach us, Holy Spirit, by illuminating your truth. Do that, Lord, by emptying me of me and filling me with your all-sufficient grace and power. This I pray in the precious name of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. Amen. Have you ever been mortified? We often use the word mortified to express deep embarrassment or shame. Like when my son was being potty trained and he chose to practice his new skills on the church lawn just as I was shaking the pastor's hand. I was mortified. But the original definition of the word mortify or mortification has nothing to do with embarrassment or shame. It comes from two Latin words, mors meaning death and facere meaning to do. Literally, mortification means to make dead or put something to death. Puritan pastor and writer John Owen lived in the 1600s and he wrote extensively. About mortifying sin. A familiar quote of his says, Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Scripture instructs us to do this in Romans chapter 8, verse 13. The King James version of the word mortify uses the word mortify, saying, If ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Sin must be mortified. Owen says that we must aim to kill all that inclines, entices, impels to evil, rebels, opposes, fights against God. We mortify sin when we go after all that is evil, all that desires evil, and all that lures us toward evil. One author recommends that we go after it like intolerant, unaccommodating, spiritual assassins. As Esther and the Jews go after their enemies and kill them, they demonstrate how believers are to kill sin. These ancient Jews are literal assassins, illustrating what it looks like to be spiritual assassins, sin killers. Normally, when I write a lecture, I will use an illustration to illustrate the passage of Scripture. In this lesson, the passage of Scripture illustrates a vital truth about the doctrine of sin. It must be killed, assassinated, mortified. Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 19 records Esther coming into her own as queen and Mordecai rising in power. The Jews carry out Mordecai's decree written in defense of Haman's decree for the destruction of God's people. Mordecai's decree mirrors Haman's, but it is a decree of the deliverance for God's people. Whether they realized it or not, God used Esther and Mordecai to providentially work toward restoring his people to right relationship with himself. For us, the picture is clear. Killing sin is the path to greater spiritual intimacy with God. I'm going to expand on that truth in three divisions. The fear shifts, the fight succeeds, and the feast starts. Our first division is the fear shifts. Esther chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. Verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. In this one sentence, the author of Esther announces the outcome of the battle between the Persians who followed Haman's edict and those who followed Mordecai's edict. The score, Haman 0, Mordecai 1. In a great reversal of events, what was supposed to be a battle to kill, destroy, and annihilate the Jews turned out to be the killing, destruction, and annihilation of all who hated God's people. Haman's day of dancing over his enemies turned into a day of devastation for his family and the enemies of God's people. What Haman intended for evil God providentially worked for the good of his people. The attribute of God that is clearly revealed in this battle is Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. This battle is won in an unusual and even surprising manner. This points to the hand of God in the victory. God's covenant promise to his people would not fail. And victory was accomplished through God's providence, meaning through ordinary people and ordinary means, not miraculous intervention. This is what the author wants us to see in the rest of the passage as he details what happened on the 13th of Adar. Verse 2. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. Although the Jews stood united against the enemy, it is God who ensured that no one could stand against them. He is the one who filled all the people with the fear of the Jews. Before they struck a blow, their enemy was weakened physically and psychologically. This was not the first time God struck fear in the hearts of Israel's enemies. The same fear went before Jacob as he traveled from Shechem to Bethel. The same fear went before Israel as they entered the promised land and the same fear gave Israel the victory over Jericho. Believing Mordecai's decree, the Jews killed their fear of those who sought to annihilate them and replaced it with courage and confidence. This was markedly different behavior for these exiles. Organized and armed for battle, they were ready to defend themselves against any enemy That attacked them. But it is Jehovah Nisi who went before them as a banner leads an army into battle. The same is true for you and me. When we mortify sins like fear and unbelief, we rest under the banner of the Lord. Can you think of a more intimate place to be? Killing sin is the path to greater spiritual intimacy with God. When we rest in Him, He fights our battles for us. King James Version of Isaiah 59:19 says, When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard, a banner against Him. Believers need not fear anyone or anything. In addition to the fear that God placed in the hearts of the Persian people, verses 3 and 4 tell us that all the government officials were filled with fear of Mordecai. The people as well as all the ranking officials of Persia had witnessed what had happened to Haman and what had happened to Mordecai. They knew Mordecai's new position of power ensured the success of his edict. Only a fool would follow the decree of dead Haman rather than Mordecai's decree. When God's people finally marched into battle, the victory was already won. The same is true when you and I choose to mortify our sin in Christ. Victory over sin has already been accomplished. The penalty of sin has already been paid. And the power of sin is already vanquished, conquered, annihilated. Believers have nothing to fear. This gives us our first truth. Killing sin is the path to eliminating all fear. What fears still plague your heart. What difficult circumstances are shifting your trust in God to the troubles of this world? The fear that filled the Jews when Haman's decree was sent out overwhelmed them. Every Jew in the Persian kingdom was doomed. There was nothing they could do about it. They were hopeless and helpless. But God, God did not forget his people. They were his covenant people. If you belong to Jesus Christ by grace through faith, you belong to God's covenant people. You have nothing to fear. Yet some circumstances may cause you to forget who you are and whose you are. The sins of fear and unbelief rear their ugly heads as the devil's flaming arrows effectively hit their target with lies about the goodness and trustworthiness of God. Kill those sins, mortify them. God is good. God is trustworthy. Combat the lies with the truth of his word. Killing sin is the path to eliminating all fear. And remember, even as you enter the fight against your sin, success is already yours. That's what we see in our second division, The Fight Succeeds. Esther chapter 9, verses 5 through 16. Now, three times in this passage, the author is careful to state that the Jews laid no hands on the plunder, even though Mordecai's decree or edict permitted them to do so. This is because, as we studied before, this is a holy war. Taking plunder was prohibited. Commentator Landon Dowden says, For the Jews, this battle was about preservation, not economic advancement. As instruments of God's divine justice, their focus was on punishment, not plunder. Verses 5 through 10, we see these instruments of God's divine justice act. It says the Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Ashpatha and Poratha and Adalia and Aradatha and and Parmashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vizdatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they laid no hand on the plunder. On the battlefield of Susa, the citadel, 510 men are killed. 500 unnamed enemies, plus the 10 sons of Haman. Commentator Ian Ducat notes that the author lists their names specifically because it's important for us to know that Haman had no seed left to carry on his unholy war against the seed of the Jews. Haman's 10 sons, along with 500 men in Susa, were so blinded by hate that Haman's decree ended up being their path to death. And it involved a lot of bloodshed by the hands of a people identified with God. This fact bothers many people, but it is helpful to remember three things. First, God is holy. He cannot and he will not let evil prevail. Second, God is a redeemer. He could not and would not allow the line of Messiah, his appointed redeemer, to be destroyed. And third, none of those who died in this battle were innocent. None. All were guilty sinners. This is a vivid picture of what we all deserve. Death for our sin and rebellion against God. Romans 6.23 teaches that the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Apart from Jesus Christ... You and I are enemies of God, alienated from him, hostile toward him. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. He is the sin killer we need. On the cross, he defeated sin forever, meaning all the sin of all mankind, past, present, and future, is defeated, annihilated, mortified. For those who did not attack God's people, Mordecai's decree was the path to life. The Jews did not attack those who did not attack them. This raises a couple of important questions of application. Whose decree are you following? Are you attacking your sin or God? Attack your sin. Mortify it. Killing sin is the path to greater spiritual intimacy with God. Come, rest under Jehovah Nisi, the banner of the Lord, over you. Rely on the power and conviction of the Holy Spirit. Sin is a powerful and persistent enemy. John Owen says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live cease not a day from this work be killing sin or it will be killing you In verses 11 through 14 King Ahasuerus receives a report from the battlefield and relays it to Esther saying In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the 10 sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Upon hearing how many were killed in Susa alone, the king sees that victory is on the side of God's people, on the side of Esther. He is more impressed than he is intimidated. He offers to grant Esther another wish and another request. Esther asked for another day of battle in Susa to be added to Mordecai's decree, and she also asked for the ten sons of Haman to receive dishonor as well as death. Did Esther's request sound harsh to you, maybe a little bloodthirsty? Many people believe that this is where Esther earned her name, which means goddess of love and war in Persia, in Persian. However, we must remember that this is a holy war. Holy wars must be carried out to completion. None of God's enemies can remain. Esther's request ensures the eradication of an enemy of God's people. She succeeds in the fight where where her ancestor, King Saul, failed. His failure against Agag, king of the God-cursed Amalekites, is reversed. God's enemies are destroyed. Today, sin is the enemy of God's people. God hates the sin that plagues his people because he knows that sin seeks to destroy them. God sent us the ultimate sin killer in Jesus Christ. His cross, an empty tomb, defeated sin, death, and the devil for all time. Esther's request to hang Haman's ten sons on the gallows again underscores that this is a holy war. You see this was a normal practice in a holy war. When leaders were, um, of defeated enemies were killed, their bodies were hung on trees, a sign of being under God's curse. This points to Jesus, who also hung on the tree we call the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He laid down his crown, to bear the curse, our curse, on the cross. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In contrast, verse 15 stands alone as a testament to the stupidity, arrogance, and foolishness of sin. It says the Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and they killed 300 men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Did you think about this? 300 men, 300 were stupid enough, arrogant enough and or foolish enough to continue the attack on the Jews. Had they not seen, had they not heard what happened the day before? 510 Persians in Susa alone were dead. None of the Jews had perished. How did they think their efforts would turn out any differently? The same is true of our sin before we get all judgmental on these people. You and I, we know the consequences of sin are damaging and even deadly. Yet we persist in it. We love it. We fail to remember that sin never leads us anywhere good. In fact, John Owen says that the lingering effect of unmortified sin will do two things. It will weaken the soul and deprive it of its vigor, vigor, and darken the soul and deprive it of its comfort and peace. This is what sin does when it reigns in us it weakens and darkens. Oh, we have great need to mortify sin. We cannot allow our sin to go unchecked, unmortified. It must be killed if we want God's strength, if we want God's comfort and his peace. Killing sin is the path to greater spiritual intimacy with him. Verse 16 provides a final note on the battle. It says, Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies. And killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. In the rest of the vast Persian Empire, Mordecai's decree held. Only one day of battle was permitted, but it was enough. The Jews got relief from their enemies. They finished this holy war. But they exercise restraint. Their primary aim was the preservation, as God's, uh, their preservation as God's people, not plunder. For us, preservation as God's people translates into personal holiness. As we faithfully war against sin to mortify it, we do so to preserve our right standing before God. As his children. Even believers whose sin is forgiven at the cross live under the power of sin. When we kill our sin, it honors God and it leads us to greater spiritual intimacy with Him. Personal holiness and intimacy with God is a believer's plunder, won by killing the sin that separates us. From God. But we need the power of the Holy Spirit to win this holy war. When we rely on His power, we succeed in conquering sin. Just like the Jews in Esther's day, before we even engage in the holy war against sin, we are more than conquerors. This leads us to our second truth killing sin is the path to living as more than conquerors. How are you measuring your success in the fight against sin? In what ways are you mortifying your sin? John Owen writes, a man may easier see without eyes, speak without a tongue, than truly mortify one sin without the spirit. The mortification of sin is the work of the Holy Spirit in a believer. Since Jesus Christ ascended to heaven to sit at God the Father's right hand, the Holy Spirit is the sin killer we need. He empowers us to conquer the power of sin in our lives by helping us put sinful deeds and habits to death. Old Puritans called this mortification but they did not stop with killing sin. The opposite of mortification is vivification, bringing to life. Believers mortify sin uh, to bring godly deeds and habits to life. Death is never the end game for a believer. Killing sin is the path to living as more than conquerors. This speaks of life true, abundant, and eternal life that is ours in Christ. And when the battle is won, the feast starts. Our third division is the feast starts. Esther chapter 9 verses 17 through 19. Verses 17 and 18. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day, they rested and made, a day, made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. In ancient times, victory in a holy war was followed by celebration. Wars ended with shouts of thanksgiving and songs of praise to God for the victory won. Many of the songs are shouts of thanksgiving and songs of praise. Moses and the Israelites celebrated with singing and dancing when they defeated Pharaoh and his armies and crossed the Red Sea, a deliverance brought about by God's spectacular, wonder-working power. God instructed his people to remind themselves and their children of his protection and provision during the final plague and his deliverance of them from Egypt. This became a lasting ordinance known as the Feast of Passover. Festivals of thanksgiving commanded by God in the past give us context for the Feast of Purim established in verse 19. The Jews needed to remember how they had anticipated devastation and destruction. They needed to remember the emotional toll of waiting for their own demise. When the reprieve arrived in Mordecai's decree, they needed to remember how they toiled in preparation to defend their families and their property. And finally, they needed to remember how they engaged in the short but intense battle and won the victory. Imagine the huge collective sigh of relief when not one Jew was lost. They needed to remember this. God's people had been delivered from the clutches of death once again. This was cause for celebration. Likewise, the Christian faith is a remembering faith and is celebrating faith. The penalty of our sin has been paid. The power of sin has been conquered. And our certain hope is that the presence of sin will one day be no more. Commentator Landon Dowden says that every Sunday we gather and celebrate Christ's victory, that he has granted us from sin and wrath, We celebrate life. We celebrate that one day all our enemies of the flesh, the world, and the devil would be put away forever. We can celebrate with certainty. Christ is our victory. He has won our victory for us. Jesus emerged from the tomb victorious. And he ascended in glory to sit at the Father's right hand. You and I appropriate His victory over sin by grace through faith. Knowing that killing sin is the path to greater spiritual intimacy with God, it motivates us to regularly, even daily, mortify our sin. And it should cause us to regularly, even daily, celebrate Our deliverance from sin. Our final truth is that killing sin is the path to celebrating our deliverance from sin. Are you a celebrating Christian? Or do you need to remember Christ's role in killing your sin? Apart from Christ, You and I are hopelessly and helplessly ensnared by sin. Our final destination is eternal death and separation from God. But in Christ, we are liberated from the cords of sin and death. Our destination is eternal life an abundant life in Christ that belongs to you and me right now. Celebrate. Confess your sin. Mortify it. Then sing the victor's song. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior, forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood sisters in christ killing sin is the path to celebrating our deliverance from sin have you ever been mortified a better question is has your sin ever been mortified Sin is mortified when we examine our hearts, minds, and lives in light of the Word of God and under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Then we work to put it to death. We must be killing sin. John Owen believed that the goal of the Christian life was knowing God intimately. For him, the goal of the gospel is to reveal the love of the Father who sent the Son as the Redeemer of his people who would be indwelt, provided with the gifts, and united together by the Spirit. Owen's book, Communion with God, is among one of his most celebrated achievements. One writer calls it the exhalation of his devotion to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the discovery of the limitless love of God. This kind of devotion is ours when we be killing our sin. The discovery of God's limitless love is ours when we be killing sin. For Owen and for us, killing sin is a worthy endeavor. It is the path to greater spiritual intimacy with God. Is that your heart's desire? If it is, ask yourself, am I killing my sin or is my sin killing me? Would you pray?